God, I, I pray that you would speak to us clearly through your word today. Um, I pray that you would uh, meet us uh, right where we are and then uh, help us to understand, uh, get a greater sense of, of who you are so that we have a greater uh, trust in you, a greater understanding of what it means to uh, live in relationship with you this morning. So I pray that you'd use uh, your word for that, uh, that great uh, work that you are doing. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Uh, my wife and, and older son have been interested in doing a lot of um, kind of historical reading lately. Uh, so they both have uh, recently read um, biographies on George Washington. My wife picked up one of these really big, thick ones that's really scholarly and all this, and, and my son picked up one that's kind of more for his grade level. And, and as I've observed them reading and commenting on what they're reading, I, I've noted that uh, their interest kind of works on multiple different levels of, of why they're so uh, intrigued by George Washington, the whole American Revolution and all that. So at, at one uh, level, there's, there's the simple desire to know more. So there's all these neat facts, and so they'll, they'll ask questions of me like, hey, did you know that George Washington had, had fake teeth? He had these dentures, and they're really painful all through his life, and here's what they were made of, and here's how long he had them and all that. And, and then did you know that he owned more than 50,000 acres of land in addition to Mount Vernon? He had a huge amount of land that he owned. So there's just the interesting facts and stuff that they, they enjoy learning. But then, of course, on top of that, there's the really powerful stories. So there's the famous story of George Washington crossing the Delaware. And, and maybe you only kind of know that phrase and don't remember the whole story of what happened there. But it was really a turning point in the Revolutionary War. It was uh, d the night of Christmas, December 25th, 1776. And things were not looking good for Washington, the Revolutionary War. It looked like the British were going to actually win. But then he had this sneak attack, middle of the night, crossing over the icy Delaware River, all the logistics, all the different uh, issues with that. And then he goes over and, and takes over the, the Hessian forces in, in um, Trenton, New Jersey. It's just a really powerful story that was a turning point in the war. But in addition to satisfying the desire to know more and to kind of uh, hear the powerful stories of the past, there's also an element of, of reading history that, that tells us the story of where we came from. So, so how did this country form in the first place? It's the foundation of what has become the United States. And, and one of the key beliefs was that all people were created equal. And we see how that was played out, kind of a flattening of hierarchy and the move toward democracy and all those kind of things. But we say that, that those who don't read history are doomed to repeat it. So there's a draw to finding out these stories and, and learning about the past, not only to know the stories, but also to inform the present. How can we learn from what has gone before us so that we can live well today and go forward today? How do we learn from this? Well, today we're starting a series in the second book of the Bible. It's a book called Exodus. So we're going way back to the beginning of uh, the story. And, and we're doing this not just because there's some interesting facts that we can learn, like, oh, what's the, the name of old, uh, Moses' oldest son? And we're not doing it just because there's some really powerful stories here, although there are some very powerful stories, powerful enough that it's gotten a lot of Hollywood attention for, for decades, way back in, in the day with Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, and then, and then more recently, the animated Prince of Egypt film, and then more recently still, the Exodus Gods and Kings thing. We're going back to Exodus not just because we want to know facts and not just because there's some powerful stories here, but we're going to go back here because we need to understand where this whole story of Jesus came from in the first place. We need to understand our place in this story and our relationship to the God who's at the center of the story. Now, Exodus is, is this great book. It's the story of, of God's people on a journey. And throughout this whole book, they don't have a permanent home. There's no land that, that they can call their own land, so they're living in exile. 
They're this young, unformed country, this unformed people group. And God is going to use the journey that they're on to teach them about who he is and about what it means to trust him in every step of the journey. So let's start this great book uh, together. Grab a Bible if you don't uh, already have one. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2 this morning. So Exodus 1 and 2 are found on page 87 of the Pew Bibles. If you'd like, you can take uh, that home. That can be our gift to you. We'd love to, uh, to send you uh, on with the Bible if you don't have one. So Exodus 1 and 2, page 87. As we look at this book, uh, we see, first of all, that, that God's people are in a really terrible situation. But in, in the midst of that terrible situation, we're going to see that they get a glimmer of hope. So let's start uh, in chapter 1 here. The first chapter of Exodus is going to be this downward spiral for God's people, but it actually starts off pretty positively. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So this is giving us the, the setting of the whole story that's going to follow here. And, and it looks really good initially. And for us to understand a little bit of, of how good this is, we have to kind of go back a little bit to the previous book, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, God creates humans and he gives them this charge. And his charge is to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the land. So this language in Exodus 1 is showing that, that God's intention for creation is happening. But not only that, but the particular people group that is growing so numerous is part of the, the special family of God. See, God had made a promise to this man named Abraham. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, he says this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the story of Genesis is, is how God started to do that. And it's a promise that's repeated then to Abraham's son Isaac. You'll, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand on the shore. And then again repeated from, to Isaac's son Jacob. So when Exodus 1 is saying that, that God's people are, are being fruitful, they're multiplying, they're increasing, they're filling the whole land, it's an indicator that, that God's plan is moving forward. Not only his intent for creation, but also his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're coming true now. This is really good news. But not everyone is pleased with this. Verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now the mention of Joseph reminds us of there's a, a lot of backstory to, uh, to how, this, uh, how God's people, the Israelites, are in Egypt. You can go back to Genesis and, and read those chapters to see what that's all about. But here we see suddenly a shift in the attitude of the Egyptian ruler toward God's people. Now, it's, it's human nature for us to develop kind of an us versus them mentality, and we tend to have a fear of the them in that equation. So really, we can understand Pharaoh's response. It's a natural response. 
He sees this group of people living in his country, and he sees that they are increasing in numbers, which means that they're increasing in power, and he fears the outcome of that. This is not going to go well for him and for his own people. And so fear drives oppression. And the first step of Israel's oppression begins right here. The Egyptians make them into slaves. They're going to control this people group and make sure that they remain in power. But it doesn't exactly work. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. See, Pharaoh thought he was going to control this people group, and the more power he exerted, the more slavery he enforced on them, the more he would be able to actually control the outcome here. But the opposite's actually happening. The more oppression, the more they're actually increasing. So he decides to up the pressure. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So things are not good for God's people. Yes, they are, they are growing in number. Yes, they've become a powerful people group in the sense that they are so numerous. And yet they are living under this harsh, bitter slavery, just terrible conditions. So the Egyptians are famous in our time for the, the huge architectural things they did and the pyramids and all this kind of stuff. But we realize that those were built on the backs of slaves like God's people. Even this, though, doesn't satisfy Pharaoh. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So slavery is not enough to guarantee control and specifically to guarantee population control. So the king of Egypt takes this oppression to another really chilling level. Kill all the baby boys. As soon as they're born, kill them. And imagine that. This is a command that's given to the midwives. The midwives are there to help with the delivery process, to, to be an assistant, to, to make sure this all goes smoothly and safely and well. And instead, they're asked to kill. Well, by God's grace, these midwives are not going to do that. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. The midwives are having a huge risk here. They're, they're taking their lives in their hands, and they are risking their own execution. But they're doing this because they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. They're going to do the right thing here. And God honors them. He spares their life. But not only does he spare their life, but God's people continue to grow in number. And even the midwives themselves get children of their own. But Pharaoh's not going to give up on this. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So the whole midwife ploy to do this a little bit secretly, that didn't work. And so now he's going to send a sweeping proclamation out. Every Hebrew baby boy is to be thrown into the Nile. Now this is a disturbing proclamation. It really shows that the depth of the darkness that, that God's people are facing right now. Their, their oppression has reached a new low. So first it was this uh, enslavement and then it was brutal labor. And now all the babies are being killed. 
You can imagine the terror of this situation. Those of you who have been pregnant know that the joy of anticipating the birth of that child. What is this little baby going to be like? What, what will she be like? What will he look like? But you also know that alongside of the anticipation and that joy, there's, there's a degree of anxiety and worry. Well, are they going to be okay? Now imagine that anxiety magnified. Nine months of wondering, is this going to be a little boy or is this going to be a little girl? And knowing that if the cry comes out, it's a boy, that's no longer a cause for celebration. But now it's a sign of imminent death. This is a really dark time for God's people. God's people are in a, a terrible situation. But as we move to chapter 2, we're going to see that there is a, a glimmer of hope in the midst of this terrible situation. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So Pharaoh had given this terrible order, every baby boy thrown into the river. But this mother is going to do everything she can to keep her baby boy alive. And so she hides him for three months, but she realizes that he grows. She, she can't continue doing this forever. She's going to be found out. And so she does the only thing she can come up with, this, this desperate plan. We'll, we'll put him in this basket. Actually, basket's the same word that's used of Noah's ark in Genesis. So she puts him in this tiny little ark and, 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 and waterproofs it as best she can, makes it floatable, puts it in the Nile. And it's a desperate plan. There's no way this is going to work. But it's the only thing that she can come up with. What else can she do? Verse 5. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to be to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, incredibly, this desperate plan actually works. You can imagine watching as Pharaoh's daughter finds this little ark. And of course, Pharaoh is the one who made this terrible order in the first place, so presumably his daughter is going to carry it out. But instead, she has compassion, and in the end, what happens is the child's own mother gets to raise him for the first years of his life. And so as, as readers, we're hearing this story and we're thinking, God's hand is in this. And we start to gain a little bit of hope here. What will this child be? What, what will happen here? It looks like God is going to do an amazing thing. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So now we fast forward to Moses' adult life, and the first thing we hear about him as an adult is that he is fighting injustice. He's coming to the aid of his own people rather than continuing to live as an Egyptian prince or whatever. He's, he's siding with his people. He's fighting injustice. And we think, well, maybe he is going to be the one that, that, that rescues God's people. And our hope as readers rises even more. Verse 13. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, 
Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So Moses again tries to intervene. Again, he's fighting injustice. He's fighting for his people. But this time, he's rejected by his own people, and his crime gets discovered, and he's suddenly on the run. He's a wanted man. He's, he's now in exile, running away from Egypt, running for his life. Verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill their troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And this is kind of a, a conflicting thing that we feel as, as readers. It, it looked like Moses was going to be this special child who was spared from execution, who grew up to rescue God's people. And yet by the end of, of this episode, by the end of the chapter, he's out of Egypt, he's out of a position of power, he's in exile, that there's nothing he can do to actually rescue God's people. And it looks like he's just going to live in exile the rest of his days, live out in the wilderness. He's got a wife now, he's got a child he says he's a foreigner living in a foreign land. This is a really disappointing moment for God's people. And, and us as readers, we're, we're disappointed that it looked like the hero came on the scene and now suddenly he's not going to do anything. It's a little bit like watching uh, the, the new Star Wars movie that came out this December, uh, The Last Jedi. A little bit of a spoiler alert here if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, but in, in the movie, the resistance is to the, the evil First Order uh, Empire is is quickly being destroyed. They're running out of options. There's not a lot they could do. There's, there's not a lot of hope. But then they remember, there's the famous Jedi Luke Skywalker. And so they send the, the new hero, Rey, to go find him. And, and certainly there's something that he can do. And then when she arrives, she realizes that he's not going to do anything. He's living in exile for a reason. He's on this little island. He's not going to do anything to help. His personal failures have left him in exile. There's nothing he's going to do. He can't help. And this is just a moment of total disappointment. And, and forget about the resistance for a moment, but as, as watchers, as people who care about Star Wars, we've been built up to this moment for two years. The last in this installment was Rey holding out that lightsaber to Luke Skywalker, and we're waiting. Okay, now he's on the scene. We're going to see what he does. And then you realize, well, what did they do to Luke Skywalker? They made him this terrible little character who actually can't do anything. He's not going to save the day. He's just going to sit there and pout on his little island. And as, as uh, watchers, as viewers, we're just totally disappointed. He's the hero. He's supposed to do something good for us. The nerdy example I know. But here too, it looks like Moses is going to be the hero. He's on the scene. He's going to do something good for God's people. And then he's just gone. Well, what, what now? It's a disappointing moment. But we're not left there, even in this episode. Listen to how the chapter ends. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now this is the most important thing that is said in these first two chapters of Exodus. God's people cry out to God for rescue. 
and God hears them, and God remembers, and God has compassion on his people. This is the most important thing we learn. God hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant. He looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This leads us to a crucial insight of the passage. Even in the worst situations, God knows and he cares. See, it looks like he is absent from this situation, but he is not. He is there. He is listening. He knows and he cares. And as the story develops, that the bigger truth that this points to becomes increasingly clear. Not only does God know, not only does he care, but God is in control. And we actually see evidence of that already in these first two chapters. The fact that God's people are growing, increasing in numbers in verses 6 and 7, that's the hand of God at work. And then when Pharaoh tries to stop it, God proves stronger. Verse 12, the more they were pressed, the more they grew. And again, when Pharaoh tries to stop it with the midwives, God intervenes and and blesses them and their families and, and, and continues to increase his people in numbers. See, this whole thing is set up as a conflict between Pharaoh and God. Now, the important thing to note here is that for the people on the ground, the Israelites, it looks like in this moment that Pharaoh is more powerful. It looks like Pharaoh is actually winning this combat between him and God. But even during this time, we see that that God is working. And as we get deeper into the story, it will become increasingly clear that God is in control. Pharaoh can do nothing to stop God's plan. Now, some of you know the story. You know where this is all heading. Some of the most amazing stories in the Bible are going to come in in this book that we're looking at. But even before we get those really amazing stories, we hear the reassuring word right here. God knows, and God cares. And we're going to learn that he's in control. And this is true no matter how bad things are on the ground. This is why even before the end, there is hope for God's people. See, these first two chapters are so important for us to grasp because we live most of our lives right here in that kind of context. You are in the middle of things right now and you do not know how they're going to resolve. You don't know what your life is going to bring. You don't know how God is going to show up. You're right in the middle of the story. That means that we're living in the same kind of context as Exodus 1 and 2. Before the story wraps up, before the stories of God's miraculous intervention that's going to be told for thousands of years after this. See, even though this is just the the start of the story, it teaches us a crucial lesson of what it means to trust God on the journey. Even in the worst situations, God knows, and God cares, and God is in control. I want you to think about your life right now. What are the, the hardest things that you are facing right now? Maybe you're having some issues with one of your kids. Or maybe you're on the the, the verge of a financial crisis. You're not sure what to do. Or maybe you're having uh, major health issues. Or maybe you're simply not content. You're, You're not happy with your life right now. You're not happy with who you are right now. Let me ask you this. Do you know how that situation is going to resolve? When you look at the hardest things of your life, do you know what's going to happen in those particular situations? I mean, so many times we we don't get to know that. It's It's a hard place to be. So what do we do in the middle of all that? Where do we turn in the middle of that? So the people of Israel, they they didn't know the end of the story. They didn't get to just flip ahead a few chapters and and see how God shows up. But what do they have? Well, they have the promises of God that we already saw, that the promise to Abraham that God would increase them in number, make them a great nation, and not only that, but would give them their own land. He would bless them exceedingly, incredibly. 
And at the very end of Genesis, Abraham's great-grandson Joseph says this. He's in Egypt, so they're not in the land that God promised to them. But he says this, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land, the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph is pointing back to the promises of God and saying, this is what we have. This is what we have to remember. And this is what gives them strength to live in the midst of that. They don't know much, but they know enough that God has made these promises, and they know enough that we're in, when they're in this terrible situation, they have to cry out to God. Where else are they going to turn? So they do the right thing. They do the only thing they know to do. They cry out to God. Now, when you and I are stuck, we have a choice. Where are we going to turn? It can be tempting for us to give up on God and try something else, even if it's just escapism for the moment, even if it's something to kind of numb the pain. But those who have turned to God, those who have a relationship with God, have discovered that turning to Him is the source of peace and hope. Let me give you an example. Some of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was 17 years old, she uh, was out uh, enjoying some time at the beach on Chesapeake Bay, and, and she dove into the water. But she misjudged how shallow the water was, and, and she actually broke part of her spine. She became a quadriplegic immediately, paralyzed from the shoulders down. So 17 years old, this energetic, active young girl, and suddenly her world just comes crashing down. And she talks about this whole experience. She talks about how she hated her life. She talks about how she hated being paralyzed. She hated her wheelchair. She talks about driving that wheelchair repeatedly into walls until they cracked from the pressure. She talks about battling depression, the continuous thought, this is my life now? How am I going to live like this? She talks about turning to alcohol as a, as a source of, of numbing the pain, even for a moment. She said this, I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. It took time, but she started considering what she believed about God. And she started uh, picking up the Bible and, and reading it. And particularly, she wanted to know about the character of God, especially the sovereignty of God. Is God really in control? And if God really is in control, then why did this stupid accident happen? Why am I paralyzed at 17 years old? Now, those are not easy questions. Those questions don't have easy answers. But as she continued to study this, she came to discover the beauty of what the Bible says about God. Yes, God is indeed in control. He is indeed sovereign king. And that's true even when things don't make sense to us on the ground. That's true that God is in control even when a 17-year-old girl is paralyzed. And so she found in God peace and hope. Last year marked 50 years since Johnny was paralyzed, and she wrote an article reflecting on 50 years of this, and, and here's what she concluded. She says, it sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. See, she turned to God, and she discovered peace. Yes, even in the worst cir circumstances, he knows, and he cares, and he's in control. Now, the reason I share her story in particular is that it doesn't get better. She's still a quadriplegic 50 years later. God did not heal her. Her situation did not change at all. The only thing that changed is that she discovered what it means to have a real relationship with God. 
She discovered that even in the worst situations, God knows and he cares and he's in control. And God has now given her a, a ministry platform through which she can point others to the same hope and peace that she found. See, Johnny's story doesn't wrap up nicely. And if you think it does wrap up nicely, you haven't considered what it means to wake up with a broken body every morning for 50 years. She's still very much in the middle of her story. Every day there's that same struggle of, God, why this? And coming back to it, no, this is what I know. It's through a relationship with him that she finds the peace and the hope to carry on. Now, you and I are, are in the middle of so many unfinished stories right now. You don't have the benefit of being able to flip ahead a couple of chapters and see, okay, this is how this is going to end. You're in the middle of it right now. So we don't get to know the, the specific ends of those specific stories today. But what we do know is that God knows what we're going through. And he cares about what we're going through. And he is in control. And we have to discover that it's through a relationship with him that we find the hope to carry on in the midst of all this. And we have something that, that the people of Israel didn't have. They were very early in the story. What we have is the testimony of the Bible, story after story of the faithfulness of God. He promises something, and then it, he makes good on that promise. He promises, and then he fulfills. He promises and fills again and again. We have a whole Bible worth of material that shows the faithfulness of God. And that faithfulness of God is centered in particular on God's own son, Jesus. And Jesus comes and does what Moses can't do. He comes and brings the full and final victory of God over the powers of sin and darkness and death. Jesus comes and through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, we see in powerful terms that all of that's defeated. He rescues his people and he offers us a chance to participate in that rescue through trust in him. So here's what we know now from our position in salvation history. We know that this all ends well. We don't know the specifics of how a particular situation is going to wrap up, but we know the big story. We know that God wins in the end, and Jesus returns and makes all things right. So for example, the Apostle Paul, an early church leader, he's considering all the suffering that he's having in his own life. He's considering all the suffering of, of all the, the followers of Jesus in intense persecution. And here's what he says. This is Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So don't use this verse as a trite saying that everything's going to be okay. That's not quite what it's saying. It's saying that God is doing something much bigger and much more important in all things, even in hardship, even in suffering. God is doing something to us. He is taking the people that, that he has chosen, you and me, and he's bringing them through this process that will end with us being able to uh, be glorified with Jesus getting to experience our true home with him. That's where this story is going, and we can have absolute confidence that that's what's happening here. So you and I, right now, today, we are in, in the story. We're right in the middle of the story. You don't know the end of that story. But God's word gives us hope here. Even in the worst situations, God knows, and he cares, and he is in control. And in the end, Jesus makes everything right. Now, what we do in the meantime matters. 
It's very easy for us to get stuck in the hard things, and, and we're on the ground, and it's easy for us to forget that God is in control. It's easy for us to think that maybe he's not in control, but the consistent testimony of the Bible is that he is, and that he is working good for us. He is working good for his people. So my prayer for us this morning is that God will use whatever hard situations we're in right now to point us to him and to draw us to the peace and the hope of having a real, vibrant relationship with him through his son. Please join me in prayer. God, we would never ask for hard things in our own lives, but I thank you that when those things come up, we know that this isn't meaningless. It's not that there's no purpose to life. It's not that you are not concerned about your people. It's not that you're suddenly out of control. I pray that you would give us the eyes to see that we can trust you no matter what. I pray that you would give us hearts to be filled with faith so no matter what's happening in our lives, we turn to you, we cry out to you, we run to you and find our peace and our hope in you through your son Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.